You know, I think when we see the theme that has been selected, there's a text for that. Unfortunately, in 2019, we think about our phones. And we think about how reliant we are upon the phone uh, that we text. How many times have you texted today? And to how many people have you texted? It's just a part of who we are and what we've become as a society. As we look at our phones, we see the various apps that are on that. I'd like for us to think in terms not at all trying to, uh, to dovetail off of that concept. The only time I'll mention it. But when it comes to the, the various matters that we face in our lives, I think we all should share the premise that there is a text in God's Word for that. If we believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is true, that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished into every good works, then there is not a corner of our life, there's not anything that we deal with that does not have an answer squarely in the Word of God. And there are different ways for us to glean truth from God's Word. And in a lifetime, we are never going to plumb the depths of the Bible. And so when it comes to how we study the Bible, there are a lot of different ways to do that. There are some great lessons to be learned as we study a topic topically. And we go to see the, all that the Scripture has to say on that given topic. This weekend, we're not going to be looking at the Bible in that kind of an approach. We're going to be looking at it more expositorily. We're going to be looking at great texts of the Bible and learning the great truths that God has for us in those texts. And hopefully what we'll do is we'll draw out a composite throughout this weekend. By looking at various texts and what they say about different parts of our life, they're going to help us to be equipped. They're going to challenge us to be more like Christ. They're going to cause us to find comfort in the ways in which we are striving to follow Him. And since I don't know you and I don't know where you're coming from, I think that's a way that we can approach the text together and to use our time most profitably. So I think a good place for us to begin in that entire endeavor is to take a great text of Scripture, and there are many, that show us about how our lives can be renewed, can be revived by our respect and our following the Word of God. You know, gospel meetings, seminars, at one time were known as revivals. And the sense in that was that it's an opportunity for us to be revived. I'd like for us to look at a text that shows one of the great revivals of all the Old Testament. We'll get to that text in just a moment. But J. Vernon McGee tells a story about a simple-minded young country boy who decided to buy a cow. And he took that cow home and he realized that it cost something to feed the front of that cow, but that he got milk out of the back of the cow. And so he ignored the front of the cow that he might focus on the back end of the cow to make more money. And you know what happened eventually. That cow died. And McGee says there's a principle to be learned, but I want to draw two morals from that. Number one is we can't approach God's Word and take what we like and reject the rest of it. We've got to take all of it together. A second moral to the story as we look at that is, is that we can't hope to reap the blessings and the benefits of the knowledge of God's Word without investing in it. And so as we look at Scripture, we see we invest, we get a return. The book of Nehemiah is a great book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. 
When you think about the book of Nehemiah, you typically think about them building a wall. The people of God have come back from Babylonian captivity and now they're back in the land and they have a requirement from God. Different leaders had different tasks. They were to rebuild the temple. They were to rebuild the wall around the temple. They were to restore the law. Nehemiah's job, and he left a great job up in the Medo-Persian Empire to come down to, to a ramshackled and torn down city to try to rebuild a wall around it so that there would be protection for the people. And the first part of the book of Nehemiah is a beautiful story about what happens when people of God are united. And when there's great leadership. And when you work hard and when there's faith involved. And and that's the first part of the book of Nehemiah. But after the wall is rebuilt and after the manual labor is done, there's another beautiful thing that begins to emerge in the book of Nehemiah. There is a great emphasis on a respect for the Word of God that was typical in Nehemiah's generation. When you come to the book of Nehemiah, the way that you know this is that, for example, 21 times the phrase God's law is found in the book of Nehemiah. Nine times just in Nehemiah chapter 8. The book, referring to the book of the law, is found eight times in the book of Nehemiah. And an oft-used phrase in the Old Testament is found three times in the book of Nehemiah, and that's the phrase, it is written. And it seems to me that in that 13-chapter book, that the hub of the book of Nehemiah so far as the respect for God's Word is to be found is in Nehemiah chapter 8. That's the text that I would like for us to look at tonight. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that the success that they enjoyed in everything that they did was because of the respect that they had for God's Word. You know, God's Word is available to us today like it has never been before in all of human history. I've been on mission trips several times to third world countries and you may not have much of this world's possessions but if you can go into an internet cafe and so many folks have phones anymore that you can get access to a free Bible and you can examine it and study it. But that tells us that simply having access to the Word of God is not enough to cause revival and and renewal in individual lives or in spiritual communities' lives. And so just having the Word's not enough. There has to be the proper response to that Word. And I want us to notice that the end result of Nehemiah and his brethren loving God's Word as they did was directly related to the success that they enjoyed. There are elements that we find in Nehemiah chapter 8 that are elements that if we put them into our lives as a church and as individuals, they are going to help us to have our best opportunity to grow. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to notice seven elements with regard to our attitude toward God's Word that will lead to renewal and revival. The first element is found in verse 1 and 2. And that is there must be a hunger for God's Word. This is where it began in Nehemiah's day. And it's hard for me to think about what would precede it in our day. They had such success because of their attitude toward Scripture. Now, I would, I would think, now having driven in this traffic on a Friday night, it's been a long time, I'd forgotten what it was like. You must be some hungry people. For you to make the trip through all this traffic to be here, you must have a great desire. 
You can relate to what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. As it begins, it tells us that the people asked for Ezra to bring the book of the law which God had given to Moses to Israel. And it says in verse 2 that that Ezra, he opened up the book and he read it to all the men and the women and all who could listen with understanding. Here are people unitedly who say, listen, we want to know what God's word has to say. And with families who were united with that kind of a mentality, individuals who would come as one and say, open to us the word of God and let us hear it, let us know it. No wonder they face such success. I want you to contrast that for just a moment with what it was like in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah's day leading up to Babylonian captivity, the Bible tells us that they resisted the word of God. And as a result of this, there was disaster upon the land. Jeremiah 6 and verse 19. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God says to Jeremiah that you're going to prophesy to the people, but they're not going to listen. Jeremiah 7 and verse 27. And so we see that Jeremiah and his peers were such that as Jeremiah delivers the word, their hearts were hardened to the word of God and it put them on a course with spiritual disaster. In Nehemiah's day, they opened up their hearts and they were zealous for the word of God and it led them to spiritual success. That hunger is what Jesus, as he begins to preach, remember, he's been baptized, he's been tempted, and now he preaches the greatest sermon ever preached. And in the very beginning of that, one of the blessed attitudes that he lays out to the people is, blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, Matthew 5 and verse 6. So we see that this hunger is what's going to lead to spiritual success. Obviously, I I tell you something you already know. You look out at our culture today and there's not a hunger for the Word of God. And so often in the religious world, there's not an emphasis on the Word of God. It's like an afterthought. It's not really at the center of what's focused upon and what's emphasized. And that kind of a mentality, if it happens in my life or if it happens in a society's life, is going to lead to spiritual disaster. But the way to revival, the way to restoration, the way to renewal is to have and to create, first within ourselves and then in others, a hunger that leads others to see the importance of and to grasp that hunger for the Word of God. The FDA has released some statistics I find convicting on a a physical level. The average American male is five foot nine and 190 pounds. That makes me just about as average as I can be. For women, it's five foot four, 164 pounds. The average American is 36.6 years old. But the average American consumes 1,996 pounds of food each and every year. You realize that's four pounds short of a ton. And they break it down even further. They say that that includes 29 pounds of fries, 23 pounds of pizza, 24 pounds of ice cream, 110 pounds of red meat, 142 pounds of sugar, 53 gallons of soda. National Geographic did a study in which they found that the average American in 1961 consumed 2,800 calories a day, and many more people were physically active throughout the day in 1961. In 2011, the average American consumes 3,600 calories. 
It was also found in another study that Americans consume the fourth most calories per person in, of any nation in the world. And so there's nothing wrong with our physical appetite unless it's too voracious and not too healthy. But what you'll find is at the same time, there is a trend in society that you're not going to need Pew Research to do for you, but they did. They found as they interviewed over 35,000 Americans that interest in religion is on the decline. They found some statistics that we'll find very interesting. They said that just over 50% said that religion was important to them in their everyday life. But in Christendom as a whole, in fact, America as a whole, 36% of people say that they go to church services once or more a week. In that study were members of Churches of Christ, and about 53% of them said that they went to church once a week. Within that study, they found that there were 31% of the people who took the Bible literally. In fact, in that study, there were more people who trusted in their own common sense than trusted in biblical teaching. They found that there were 50% of people who said they read their Bible at least once a week. 45% seldom, if ever, read their Bibles. Among members of churches, less than 60% said that they read their Bible at least once a week. Now, the antidote is found in the problem. There's a lack of appetite spiritually. Our bodies are bloating, but our spirits are starving. The antidote is to return, to revive, as they did in Nehemiah's day. They had been through some dark days. They had been through some spiritual valleys. But now coming out of that, they recognized their dependency upon God. And they said, we're hungry. We want to open up our hearts to the Word of God so that we can humble our will, hearts to the will of God. And so the first element, if there's going to be spiritual revival, is that there has to be a hunger for the Word of God. Now I make that personal in my life. I know that when I'm walking through spiritual valleys, it's at times when I'm not hungry to get in the Word of God. When I don't make it a priority and I don't desire that. I listen to David in places like Psalm 19 and verse 10. He says, it's more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And I appreciate the value that is being said in that word, but... When I value it in my life, I begin to see just how precious it is. And it makes me long even more for the Word of God. The first element to lead to our own revival, to spiritual success, is what will overturn and overhaul and overcome for congregations is hunger for the Word of God. The second element that we'll find that leads to spiritual revival is that there was an intense hearing of the Word. In verse 3 and 4, you'll find that there was an intense desire to hear the word. And here's what caused that. That first of all, they took adequate time. If you'll read in verse 3, it says that Ezra opened up the word and he started in the early morning and he went through midday. Now, first of all, let's imagine an Atlanta without traffic and you could get here when you wanted to be here exactly, right? And let's imagine that it was set that at 6 a.m., Eric is going to get up and he's going to start reading the Word of God. Everybody gets here. And Eric starts reading from 6 a.m. through the lunch hour on into the early afternoon. That's what is being depicted by Nehemiah. They took the time. Look, let me give you equivalent to that. Here you are on a Friday night, you're here, and you're opening up your heart, and you're listening to the Word as it's taught. 
That's a hearing. That's taking the time. They took the time, but they also paid attention adequately. It says they listened attentively to the word of God. And there was adequate or uh, ready preparation that was made. They made preparation for it. There was a podium that was made for the occasion so that Ezra could get up and read from the book of the law. They took the time. They paid the attention. They made the preparation. They were ready to hear. Again, I contrast that with other times in the history of God's people. What about in Amos' day? They were looking ahead to going into captivity because of their sin. And Amos is given this prophecy and he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause a famine, not of bread or of thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Amos 8 and verse 11. God's people were destroyed for lack of knowledge in Hosea's day. They stumbled, they forgot the law. Hosea 4 and verse 6. But in Nehemiah's day, their ears were open. They were listening intently to the word of God. And it led them to revival and renewal to do things like they had not done in a long, long time, as we'll see later on in the book. So they're ready to listen. They're ready to hear. So often I think that there is a message that said that that gospel preaching and teaching is not going to lead to growth and success. So many in religion are looking for something else to be the focal point. And lost in that is the time and the attention and the preparation to the Word of God. And people are hearing everything but what the Bible has to say. They're not hearing what the text, what the book is saying with regard to anything. And so whatever the challenge is that people are facing in life, they're going to some other source. And the Bible might not even get a hearing. It was not some very elaborate scheme. Ezra and Nehemiah... They are just sharing the word of God and people are open to it. They're hungry and so they're hearing it. I want you to notice what scripture says about the blessing that comes with simply doing what we're doing tonight and that's hearing the word of God. You know Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. And so our faith, our belief in the God that we worship and that we serve is produced by hearing the word of God. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus at the end of that great sermon says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon the rock, building on the right foundation of life. Being wise in God's estimation comes in hearing God's word. There are four soil types in the parable of the soils of Matthew 13. And Jesus says that the good soil is the one who hears and understands and bears fruit and brings forth. And we see in Colossians 1 and verse 5, the folks at Colossae who heard the word of God, it built their hope of eternal life. If I want hope that gets me through the day by day, by hearing God's word, it's going to produce that. Or how about Revelation 1 and verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads the book of this prophecy, who hears the words of this prophecy and does them. So we're not surprised that we look at Nehemiah and the people of that generation And they have a hunger for what God's will has to say. And then they hear what God's word has to say. And success follows over that. See, we're walking through and we're going to see the end result of this success. It's just starting to happen as these events occur. But then third, I'd like you to notice with me, there's another element in verse 5 and 6. And that is that they honor the word of God. Something very beautiful emerges here. 
The attitude that is taken toward the Word of God shows such a reverence and a respect. It's really hard for us to conceive of that because as we think about our assemblies, we live in a different time, we live in a different place under different circumstances, but they had had the law, the Word of God, locked away from them for a long time, and so they had lost sight of it. And so it was refreshing, it's new, this opportunity to hear the Word of God. What they do in the wake of that is amazing. I want you to notice that the first thing that they do is when they hear the word of God, they spontaneously stand up. Now the text doesn't tell us that this is in reverence, but what happens next leads us to believe that that's exactly what they're doing. That they hear God's word as it's being read. And can you imagine in the assembly, let's go back to that illustration of Eric, that he's up reading from the beginning of the day into the middle of the day, that as soon as the reading begins, that everybody stands up. It's not contrived, it's not orchestrated, but there's such a reverence for the Word of God that everyone stands. You know, in so many times and places, it's a timeless way to show honor and respect. It's going to happen again in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 3, but it's certainly happening on this occasion when the Bible, when God's Word is shared. They stand up. But second, they say, Amen, Amen. You know, Trey started amening me a while ago, and I may say something before the sermon's over that I hear another amen, but preachers love amens. We love that, that what is it they say? It's like saying uh, sick them to a bulldog. But, you know, you like being affirmed when you're saying what's right. And what Ezra is saying is the truth. And the people don't just say amen. You'll notice in the text, they say amen, amen. They double down on that. They say, this is true. We're ready. We see that this is what God is saying to us. And then they honored God's word. They did so by raising their hands. This honor is shown by their standing up. It's shown by their saying, amen, amen. It's also shown by their raising their hands. Now, if you watch religious television, sometimes you'll see folks who raise their hands in a fashion like this. And and I'm not disparaging that at all, but I want you to know that it would have looked different in Nehemiah's day. When they were raising their hands to God, it would have been more in a position of begging, of beseeching. The idea being, God, we are dependent on you. Also, the idea of, God, we are grateful to you. Thank you. And so as the word of God is being shared with them, they stand in reverence. They say, amen, amen, and they raise their hands in dependency and gratitude to God for the beautiful truth of his word. And then the thing that is amazing, and I I don't, I I wonder what that would have looked like. Verse 6 says that they bowed down with their faces toward the ground. They were so prostrated by the truth of what was being said that they were just undone. Think of Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah 6 and his commission and his call? When he comes into the very throne room of God in that scene, and he sees all that takes place, the seraphim and the glory of the Lord filling the temple, that he's just undone. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. They saw it that day. They saw it through the revelation of God's word. Do I honor God's Word? When I'm listening to Bible teaching and preaching, 
Do I honor the word like the Bereans did? Do I follow along behind teaching and preaching to see if the things that are being said are so? Acts 17 and verse 6. When I preach God's word, do I honor that word? Do I make the heart of my lesson of thus saith the Lord? Or is scripture a postscript and an afterthought? And what about in my individual life? Do I honor God's word by my study habits? Is scripture really bread for daily food or is it cake for special occasions? In Nehemiah's day, they were honored the word of God with their lives. In the ways that we have seen, we don't have to stand up. We don't have to say amen. We don't have to raise our hands. We don't have to bow down with our faces toward the ground. But God is looking for that kind of honor from you and me with regard to his word. Paul Boucher and Henry Dempsey were flying an eastern express jet. 15 passenger plane, the Beechcraft 99. They were flying from Portland, Maine to Boston, Massachusetts. And as they're flying about 200 miles an hour, about 5,000 feet above the ground they noticed that the door ajar light indicator was on in the cockpit. That the cockpit door in the cabin was open. And so Dempsey, being the pilot, turned the controls over to Boucher, and he goes back to try to secure that door. And when he goes to secure that door, at that very moment, that door flies open. And Dempsey is sucked out of that plane. He happens to grab the ladder on his way out. Boucher doesn't know what's going on. He knows he's got to land that plane. He lands that plane in about 10 minutes or so. And Boucher, or rather Dempsey, as he grabs that ladder, he grabs it such that his head is about a foot from the ground. And that plane is still going 100 miles an hour when it lands that 10 minutes later. But the part of the report that stuck out to me was this, that it took airport personnel, and I quote, several minutes to pry Dempsey's fingers from that plane. I guess so. What Dempsey held on to saved his life. But what so many people hold on to is hurting their souls. We need to let go of everything else and hold on to the Word of God. Because that leads to our revival and our renewal as the people of God. Here's what's happening in Nehemiah's day. The Word of God is being shared. And as it's being shared, there's a response that's taking place. And we notice in that response that they're hungry, they're desirous. It's filling a need inside of them that they open their ears and they listen and they hear. And as a result of that, they're growing in their honor, their respect, their reverence for the Word of God. No wonder they're going to do great things. But the fourth thing that we see here, and this is beautiful, and this is so necessary for us to grow in our lives they ask for help with regard to the Word of God. We see that in verse 7 and 8. Maybe there's no more beautiful response in all the Bible than what the Ethiopian nobleman makes in Acts chapter 8. He is coming a long way from worship. And he is well to do enough that he has the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading through that. And as he reads through it, he doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't know who the writer is speaking of. And God calls Philip to that chariot. And he joins himself to it and he says to him, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, How can I except some man should guide me? Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we can't figure it out by ourselves. 
You know, there are areas in which you know more about things than other people do. And you're in a position to help them if they're humble enough to listen. But sometimes some of the most important things we don't know enough about. I have three sons. They're, uh, they're adulting, I guess. I don't know what the, the, the 2019 term is. That's a recent term. They're trying to figure out what it takes to live as adults. And one of the things that's been hard for at least a couple of them is figuring out taxes. Now, there's only about three people in the whole world that can figure out taxes adequately. And it's, neither one of them are my sons. And they need help. So what do they do? They reach out to somebody, not just who does taxes, but who can help preachers with their taxes, their, their unique laws for them. In some area in life, you're going to, in fact, several times, you're going to have to appeal to somebody else for help because you're not going to know it. In Nehemiah's day, it's beautiful to see that here are people who have been in captivity for 70 years. And now they're back into the land that God promised to their forefather Abraham. And it says that the, the, the Levites and Ezra, those 13 men that stand before them, they're having to explain it to them, to translate it to them, so that they would get the meaning that's in God's Word. I don't know, maybe they spoke more Aramaic than they spoke Hebrew. And maybe they needed those priests to really break down the Word and to help them to know exactly what God was asking of them. Whatever it was, they saw their need and they were willing to reach out and ask for help. You know, there is no substitute for our own individual responsibility to study the Word on our own. But as far as long as time has existed, it seems, God has employed preaching to help in that. You know, you think back to 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, and it says that Noah, at the beginning of time, was a preacher of righteousness. Jonah, after he tried to run away from God, he gets his great commission a second time. In Jonah 3 and verse 2, and he's told, Arise and go to Nineveh, and there preach the preaching that I bid you. In, in Matthew 3 and verse 1, at the dawn of the New Testament time, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And Jesus, right after he's baptized, he goes preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew four seventeen. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 disciples, two by two, to preach. And at the end of, of the book of Matthew, he sends all disciples out to preach. And so we're not surprised when we get to passages like 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. And then in Titus 1 and verse 3, God has manifested his word. Through preaching. When you think about the awesome responsibility that comes in this medium, God has chosen for us to communicate the will that He has revealed to us in part through preaching. Whoever stands before a group of people to share the Word of God is in a vast potential to help. Some are hurting rather than helping because they're preaching another gospel. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says that there's a curse upon those that do that. And in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, there's a curse upon those that listen to that. But when the word of God is presented in its truth, as it was in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, it led to great results. I think if we're not careful, we listen to what the world's wisdom says. And it says, preach anything but the Bible. God's word shows us what happens. When the Word of God is preached. That's just the fourth element. I want you to see a fifth element. A 
A fifth element that led to their revival and their renewal was that they had a heart for the Word of God. Verse 9 through verse 12. William Fry is the author of the book Crying the Mystery of Tears. And in that book, he reveals that women on average cry 5.3 times a month. They have an, the way he put it was there was an average of 5.3 crying bouts that women have every month. Men cry an average of 1.4 times a month. I have no idea how that fits with the averages of this congregation. I imagine it's not too far off. And when men cry, they, more, they kind of wet their eyes with tears. It's kind of well up. But women are more prone to weep openly. And Fry's point in all of this was, is that because women are more capable and connected to their emotions, that they can cry in stressful situations. It's one of the reasons why women outlive men. I don't know if that's true or not. I know this, that there are times when our emotions are called upon, that we need to engage our emotions. And there's no time like the, the examining the challenging of God's Word in our hearts and lives. We cry about a lot of stuff, don't we? We cry over YouTube videos of puppies and of love poems and toddlers singing. We cry over movies and music that, that speaks to our song or some special time or there's some uh, poignant moment. What we find here is that Ezra and Nehemiah and the folks present had their emotions stirred by the Word of God. It was so much that the priest and the Levite said, wait, stop. This is a day of rejoicing. But <clears throat> there was some reason why they were shedding tears. God's word is powerful. It ev evokes a strong response from us. The church at Corinth had all kind of problems. Paul wrote a letter to them. And their response to that was that they had godly sorrow. They wept over their condition. There are times when I see things in God's Word. If my heart is open, it draws out my emotion. It makes me weep. It, it involves me because it affects me so directly. When I think about what's happening here, I don't know why they're shedding tears. You realize that Nehemiah doesn't tell us what they were crying about. They could have been crying over the sins of their forefathers. They could have been crying over the physical condition of the nation as they come back. They, they could have been crying over any number of things, but at least there's a spiritual component because the priests see that as a response to the reading of God's law. You know, I've never done the statistical study, but of those who have responded to preaching where I've been present, a large percentage of those folks have been young people. I love to see the, the tenderness of heart in young people, in young adults and teenagers. Perhaps it's in part why Jesus would say that we're to become like little children for such is the kingdom of heaven. The emotion that was showed on that day reveals hearts engaged in the Word of God. If we want revival and renewal in our individual lives, in our collective lives, and we want to impact the world around us, then our hearts have got to be more engaged in God's Word than anything else in our lives. I mentioned in my, my first time I stood before you uh, earlier, before uh, Eric stood, I saw that red and black. I, I'm a Georgia Bulldog, close to fanatic. I don't know if I want to admit that I, I go that far, but I really like the dogs. 
I better be careful that that doesn't eclipse my desire and my heart for God's Word. Nothing belongs in that place. But the next thing I see that led to their revival and renewal was that there were the heads of the household and their attitude toward the Word. This is beautiful. We can't miss this. In verse 13 through 15, there is a proclamation that's made. And what we see is is that God speaks to all the men and women and those who can listen with understanding, but it's the men of the house who step forward and they get with the Levites and they begin to make plans to fulfill something that's in the law that had been overlooked. There are two days of religious significance in this month, in the seventh month for the nation of Israel. And one of the events was a solemn day. It was the Day of Atonement, a day of affliction. It was the only mandatory fast day under the old law. That's on the tenth day of the month. That's not the festival. The festival in, in view here, in verse 15, is this Feast of Tabernacles. They would go out and camp for 40 days in commemoration for God taking care of their needs when they were in the wilderness wandering. Not only that, it was a time for them to celebrate and the idea that God had provided their crops for them. They had prayed for and they had longed for results and God had given them the, the fruits of the land and so this feast would incorporate that. But here's what happens. I want you to take this in your mind as a picture. You have the leaders of the people and the leaders of the home. They get together. They get their heads over the word of God and they want to do it as it's written, verse 14. And so they say, we're going to go out there and we're going to proclaim this in all of the country, verse 15. And so you have the men stepping up and doing exactly what God says. You know, I have uh, Eric's book, just went out of my mind. You Take God, I think is the name of it. My favorite chapter is chapter 15. It's the most convicting chapter in that book. It's reasons that men give for not being the spiritual leaders of their home. They disagree with God that it's their job. They also are ignorant with regard to God's will of their leadership in the home. Or they have allowed their wives to be the leaders instead. Or they say their wives won't follow them. But as you know, because Eric's been your preacher for 22 years, and he's preached that, I know. Ephesians 5.25 puts that mantle of responsibility squarely on the man. We cannot abdicate that. We cannot pass that off. We are to love our wives by extension of that. We are to love our families, Ephesians 5.25 through 27. And if we love our spouse and if we love our children, we are going to accept the responsibility that God has given to us. We're going to step forward and we're going to do what God tells us to do. You want to see a a religious decline and spiritual stagnation? Look close enough at the home and you'll find men who have abdicated their God-given responsibilities. You want to see a restoration movement the likes of which we've not seen in our lifetime? You fill a church with homes where fathers are standing up and doing what God says to do to make the, the Word of God the priority of their lives. And that church will grow and that community will be reached. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives that responsibility to fathers. He speaks to the men. And he says, I want you talking about God's word all the time, everywhere. And this is the result of that in Nehemiah's day, that there was inevitable spiritual success. A couple of years ago, a lot of the leading stories had to do with a man named Bruce Jenner. Remember Bruce Jenner? He was an Olympian. You know, if you're young enough, you don't remember him as Bruce Jenner. 
You remember him as somebody else. Some of the saddest stories of that year had to do with Bruce Jenner. And the saddest of all to me was an article that ran in the early summer. His children didn't know whether or not to celebrate the third Sunday in June as Father's Day because she now considered herself a woman named Caitlin. We look at Bruce and we say, man, you're confused. You're, you're in some level, this, this is just, it doesn't seem as it ought to be. But what about the person who has abdicated, has, has shunned the role that God has given to them? See, there's a role confusion sometimes if we step back. We don't do what God has given to us to do. In Nehemiah's day, the men were at the forefront leading their families. Oh, what great contributions the women and the children have always brought. But God speaks to the men, perhaps because there's a reticence sometimes on our part to do that. But when we stand up, renewal and revival comes. And then there's the last element in Nehemiah 8. And that's happiness over the Word of God. There's celebration and there's rejoicing, verse 17 and 18. The Word, the seed is planted. It does its work. We see all that we've seen in this chapter. And as a result of that, there is a joy and a rejoicing that follows. God wants us, His people, to be celebrating, to be rejoicing our Christianity. What a great life the life is that God has given to us. When you think about what's at the heart and at the center of Christianity, there's grace. There's that unmerited favor. There's the place we were where we were lost. And God inserted Himself into that situation. And He gave His Son as a sacrifice for us. And as a result of that, there is the hope that we cling to each and every day. There is the peace that fills our hearts that passes all understanding, Philippians 4 verse 7, and it guards our hearts. Surely, going to show that with joy when we sing I'm happy today or sing and be happy our faces will know it and will show it and others will know it's a consequence it's a consequence that's found in rooting our life in the word of God but as we do there should be joy and rejoicing and that's infectious the people who are in our lives will see that and they'll want what we have you look through Nehemiah chapter 8. It's, it's written over 400 years before Christ. And as you look at what takes place there, it is as 21st century with regard to the people of God as anything could be. At least as we see what it took for revival to take place. Walk through history and see the times of great restoration and revival. You might go to Josiah's day. And see in this time of the divided kingdom when this boy king comes to the throne and the law is rediscovered and there's restoration. Or how about Hezekiah's day? When there's a great reliance upon restoring the things, the feasts, the activities of the old law. Look at the early church, the restoration that came as the message of Jesus is being preached. And look throughout church history. At times when there was great flourishing and great growth, it's when people sat down, opened up the book, and studied it, and then put it into practice. They applied it to their lives. And that's what can happen anywhere. That's what can happen. The first thing we're going to talk about is how to take a city for Christ. I don't know how big Atlanta is. I'll find out between now and tomorrow morning. It's big. I know that. And I don't know how big the Avondale congregation is. Comparatively small. What can you hope to do 
in that sea of humanity. As much as the Word of God holds within it the possibilities. There's revival and there's restoration that comes when we wholeheartedly get in the book and live it out in our lives. A man by the name of James Holman was a British naval captain. He was an explorer. And before his life was over in 1857, he had traveled over 250,000 miles. He climbed Mount Vesuvius when it was erupting. He fought and hunted a mad elephant in Ceylon. And he was in the process of circumnavigating the globe, mostly over land, when he was caught by Russian authorities on suspicion of being a spy. The thing that was amazing is that he did every bit of that after an illness caused him to be left totally blind at the age of 25. In fact, he was known as the blind traveler. He preferred to travel alone. And I thought as, as I read the history of his life, if a man with no physical sight could do that much, how much can a people who have spiritual sight, how much can I with, phys, with spiritual sight as an individual do? God wants us to see. He wants that the word is a window into his heart and into his will, Ezekiel 38 and verse 23. And when we open it up, it opens up to us amazing things that we can do as God's people. When Nehemiah came back to the land, he saw more than broken walls. He saw broken lives. Brick and mortar took care of the walls. But only the word could take care of the lives. And so it is for me. As I'm broken, to the extent that I am, God has a text. He has His Word that can mend me. It shows me how to do that. And revival and renewal and restoration is possible for me. If my heart is open to the revealed will of God, I can see that He has a plan for me that He wants me to know and He wants me to follow. He wants me to act on the beautiful truth of His Word. Believing that simple but profound truth that He sent of Himself one to die in my place, His Son, my Savior. And that He died a death that I might escape eternal condemnation if I will repent from my sins and if I will confess that Jesus is the Son of God and if I will be baptized, my sins can be washed away. That is renewal at its most basic and yet most important. And as a child of God, I have the ability to be made right with Him, to be restored if I've lost sight of that, if I need to realize my need and I come back home to Him. That may be where you are tonight. We're going to sing a song of invitation to encourage you. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.